Hello and welcome to this week's ATP Tennis Radio podcast, which has a distinctly Olympic ring about it. I'm Chris Bowers and we felt it was important to have an Olympian with us this week, so I'm delighted to welcome Jill Krabus, who represented the USA at the 2008 Beijing Games. Jill's in Washington reporting on this week's event for our TV colleagues, but she's also been keeping a close eye on events in Tokyo. And uh, Jill, as a former Olympian yourself, how have you enjoyed the Olympic tennis this year? I've really enjoyed it. I enjoy the uh, Olympics in general. It's one of my favorite things to watch. I watch every event on on television. And um, but the tennis has been really exciting. I think it's always interesting to see who's going to make that push through. Um, and I think we, you know, we had some great players that that went through and did well. I thought Zverev played exceptional tennis. I mean, he deserved the gold. He was playing so well. Um, but it's been it's been a really fun event to watch. It's interesting. The first winner of the tennis Olympic men's singles after tennis returned to the Olympics in 1988, Miloslav Macic, he said winning the Olympic gold was for him the biggest thing for him as a sportsman or athlete, but not necessarily the biggest thing as a tennis player. Did you find that the Olympics gave you something that you just don't get elsewhere on the tennis circuit? You know, this, this is kind of been an ongoing debate on, you know, the weight of, for example, Olympic gold or Grand Slam. It's sort of been an ongoing debate on what the tennis players feel like is mo- more important to them. But I mean, I, I think something like the Olympic gold is special in its own way, because obviously it only happens every four years. It's something that is not that available that often. And it's a, it's a different sort of sensation. I mean, you're you're playing for your country. Your teammates are with you. Um, and so it's a different kind of pressure and there, there can be, depending on the player, a lot more nerves involved. So somehow that can make it seem like it gains that a little bit more importance, but there are a lot of players that still feel like, you know, that grand slam title is what they're going for. It's something that they've been striving for. So it's been kind of been this ongoing debate. It's interesting, but there, I mean, the Olympics just have that, that special moment, I think, because it's so rare. And um, like I said, you're playing for your country. So it's sort of a different kind of feeling. I mean, it's interesting. If you look back to 1988, the Olympic champions have divided themselves into two categories. There are plenty of Grand Slam winners. I mean, Andre Agassi, Evgeny Kafelnikov, Rafael Nadal and Andy Murray, Murray twice. And then there've been those who've never even made a major final and for whom the Olympic gold has been something of a high, the highlight of their career. Players like Miloslav Macic, Mark Rosse and Nicolas Massu. Now, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Alexander Zverev winning the gold, beating Karin Khachanov in the final. OK, Zverev has been in the US Open final last year, but he could yet fall into either of those categories, couldn't he? Yeah, it's possible. Um, but I think, you know, I, that's something that he's still going to be striving for. Um, for example, what you just said, Zverev, he's still going to be going for that Grand Slam title. I mean, that's something that's definitely a goal for all of these players. And, you know, it's possible that these players fall into that category where they get that Olympic gold and don't get that Grand Slam. But I, I don't think they're necessarily focusing on that. I mean, I just so I read an article as well, you know, Zverev was asked about the U.S. Open right away and his, I liked his response. He was like, I, I want to soak this gold medal in, like I want to enjoy this moment. So for him, it's, it was about being in that moment. He just wants to really appreciate um, that gold medal right now. And then obviously, you know, he's just going to take a couple weeks, enjoy that, and then get into the mode of gearing up towards the U.S. Open and going for that title. But 
um, that's always going to be a, a goal for him. But he he did mention, um, you know, that that gold medal was so special for him. Do you think that by winning the gold medal, this actually elevates Zverev? That he's almost in in terms of the gravitas he has on the tour, he is now almost in that category of Grand Slam champion. Yeah, I think I I definitely think so. I mean, he knows that he can do it, and I think that's one of the things that gives him that helps him a lot is giving that confidence. I mean, he won the ATP tour finals as well. He knows he can do it in those big moments in the tour finals at the Olympics. Um, so for him, it's about being able to, you know, transfer that over to a grand slam. But I think this is just going to give him that extra confidence to know he can beat those big guys in those big moments, in those big tournaments. And he beat Djokovic in the semifinals, not just from a set and a breakdown, but uh, absolutely turned the tide uh, on on Djokovic um, and uh, stopped the, the dreamed golden slam for Djokovic. So where do you think this leaves Djokovic? Well, that's interesting because, I mean, from Zvera's point of view, I mean, that was well handled as well. I mean, knowing how much was on Djokovic's shoulders and how much he bad how badly he wanted that gold medal and for Zverev to be able to sort of deal with all of that emotion around Djokovic and all that um you know excitement around Djokovic going for the golden slam I mean that was well handled by Zverev and Djokovic you know it's interesting um I think you know there was so much attention on the golden slam for him and what he's been going for and to be able to deal with that amount of pressure and that amount of expectation on him and he's done it before in the past don't get me wrong I mean he's an amazing champion he's been able to deal with those pressure moments but I think you know you could see it in his face during during the matches that he just put so much energy into it and I think it almost became overwhelming at the end that he couldn't believe that it actually didn't happen um, and just his emotion came out. And that happens sometimes with players when you've invested so much and you just envision yourself not going it any other way but winning. And I sort of feel like the emotion that came through, that's what happened with, with Djokovic. But I mean, he's look, he's one of the best players that can bounce back from tough moments, from tough challenges. So I don't think it's going to affect him. I think he's probably going to need just a little bit of time to sort of reflect back and get himself in the in the, the better mental state to get to gear up towards the US hard courts. But, you know, he's going to bounce back fine. Well, I, I was struck by just how he fell away after losing that match to Zverev. I mean, uh, the, 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 he still had a chance of a gold in the mixed doubles, but uh, fell away badly in that. And then sort of uh, he would not want to look back too much at the bronze medal playoff match, which he lost to Karenia Busta and lost two rackets as well. Um, I mean, it was almost a form of meltdown. I mean, You're right. He has shown he could bounce back, but he's got a major recovery operation to do between now and certainly the US open if not Toronto or Cincinnati yeah and that that in particular is a very quick turnaround because after he lost that um, semi-final match I mean to be able to recover right away and have to deal with that so quickly um, that would have been challenging because he had he you know he had it in his mind that he was going to do it I mean that's that's my opinion he just had it so mentally in his mind that he was going to come away with the gold and when it didn't happen I think to recover that quickly is is super challenging. Um, I, I think, you know, from from Tokyo and coming to the U.S. to the hard courts, I think having that period of time, I mean, he's going to have to, yeah, reflect a little bit and kind of accept what's happened. 
Um, but like I said, I think once once we get to the once we get to the U.S. Open, I think he'll be okay. Yeah, my own view on this is that I think uh, beating Nishikori in the quarterfinals took more out of him than we thought because that that was that was actually almost a, a cup final for you know Nishikori really did gear up to these Olympics. He has done for several years and he threw everything into the Olympics. And in the quarterfinals, he's up against Djokovic, and Djokovic was so good that although consciously he would never have had a down, you know, he would not never have underestimated Zverev in the semis. I just think that. He put so much into that just stunning performance. I mean, dropped just two games against Nishikori. I know he's got a very good head-to-head against him, but I just wonder whether he'd peaked for that and was looking to peak for the final and just wasn't quite at his best for the semis. I mean, it's an interesting perspective because, I, I mean, even Nishikori said himself, he thought he played really well and he was just like, look, I've never... I'm, and they, like you said, they played each other so many times. But Nishikori was even like, I mean... I, I thought I played really well and I've never seen the guy defend so well and exactly. so many balls back. And so Nishikori was super impressed with that. And may, I mean, that's an interesting perspective. Maybe he did peak at um, maybe too early. I mean, that's hard to gauge because I, I feel like Djokovic was just getting stronger and stronger. And to me, normally when that happens, it continues throughout the event. I think, you know, Zverev played exceptionally well and I don't know. I mean, you can, I guess you can reflect on that a little bit um, as far as his matchup against Nishikori, but I think that's a good matchup for him as well. I think he feels confident. One other player I think we ought to mention, the silver medalist, Karen Hachanov. I mean, there's been these three Russians. Um, Medvedev has very much established himself as the leading Russian, but Rublev's had a good couple of years. And Hachanov, who was uh, the champion at Paris-Bercy a couple of years back, um, he's rather slipped back. And yet this was his moment. Do you think he can push on from here? I definitely do. And I thought he was already playing better when I was watching him at Wimbledon. He had a great, great Wimbledon run, Hachanov. And um, I think he's carried that over um, into Tokyo extremely well, just transitioning from the grass to the hard courts. I think he did a really good job. The Tokyo courts tend to be pretty fast. Um, so he he transitioned well in that regard from grass to the hard courts. But, but I think, you know, gaining, I think his confidence is growing again. He has the game. He's got a super powerful game, big serve, big forehand. Um, so it was just about kind of when you have, when you play that style of tennis, it's about having that confidence to really step up and go after your shots. And I feel like he's starting to do that a little bit more often and not have that hesitation that he was maybe earlier in the year. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, he's looking really good. And just a word about the doubles. I mean, at, this, at the end of last year, we knew that um, uh, Nikola Mektic and Matej Pavic were teaming up specifically with the Olympics in mind. And we thought, well, they'll be a useful pair anyway. They're winning everything at the moment. They've won the gold medal. They beat their fellow Croats, um, Marin Cilic and Ivan Dodig in the uh, semis. I mean... I'm not sure who's now going to beat Mektic and Pavic. I mean, they're almost guaranteed the year-end number one ranking, even this early. But they're remarkable. They're playing amazing. And it's almost like they've forgotten how to lose. And <laughs> that's sometimes that can be difficult to describe, but you do get into this mode where you continue to win match after match after match. And you do, it almost becomes automatic. Like you, you just know somehow you're going to get through these matches. And they had some tough matches at Wimbledon before leading into Tokyo and they and they got through those challenges and they just lifted their game in those big pressure moments and they gel so well together I mean you can see their communication is really good on the court they're always constantly trying to work with each other work things out um, 
Yeah. And they, I mean, it's just amazing what they've accomplished. I mean, they're, they're winning so many matches and they've just been able to, to continue with that. It's unbelievable. And you know, Croatia now has gold, silver and bronze in the Olympic men's doubles because uh, Cilic and Dodig, Dodig won the, sing, uh, the silver medal. And if you go back to 2004, uh, Lubicic and Ancic won the bronze at about four o'clock in the morning after a remarkable uh, long, it was the days before final set tie breaks. They won the, the bronze medal then and were absolutely ecstatic. And it's interesting, I was commentating on the quarterfinals between Cilic, Dodig and uh, Andy Murray, Joe Salisbury. And Murray and Salisbury had a point for 5-3 in the second set, having taken the first set. Dodig, who hadn't played well, just struck the most amazing forehand return of serve. Um, They broke serve. They won the second set. They won the Champions tiebreak. They won their semi-final match. It's amazing how one shot can turn round uh, a whole, not not just a whole match, but a whole tournament. And they come away with silver. And I'm just so pleased about the New Zealanders, uh, Marcus Daniel and Michael Venus, who've taken the bronze, especially the amount of work. You may have heard the interview uh, I did earlier this year with Marcus Daniel. It's on the ATP exclusives channel uh, with Marcus Daniel about the work he does to try and encourage athletes to share as much of their income as possible with um, you know effective charitable causes and for him to come away with a bronze medal that's one of, one of the most heartwarming stories of this Olympics well I, I mean I think you're touching on something that's really important to to emphasize is how much is behind the scenes I think and how much hard work that all these players put in and for example just your example of Marcus Daniel like how much he's trying to get other players involved to give back and I think a lot of players are doing that with a lot of charities and foundations and that just means extra more when you're being able to come away with that that medal. And I, you know, listening to Marcus Daniel after they won won that medal, it was just it was I mean it was heartwarming and it was it gave me the chills just listening to him how much it meant to him how much it meant to his country, um, and and that's what I mean that's what's so amazing is it's not I mean, the the reason it means so much is because of everything that's been done in the past or in everything they're trying to do for their country to give back and that's why it's like just accumulates and it's just that's what gives me the chills all the time absolutely uh, we ought to also give our congratulations to john piers aslan karatsev and andre rublev who shared the medals in the mixed doubles and congratulations also to the women's champion belinda bencic and the women's doubles gold medalists krechikova and siniakova you mentioned that uh, pavic and mektic had lost the ability to lose i think krechikova and siniakova are almost the same what a year krechikova's having well it's been a, a wonderful Olympic tournament played in very, very difficult conditions. And we must also remember that a lot of players had to deal with an awful lot of um, stresses and strains due to the fact that, uh, you know, Japan is in a really serious part of the pandemic at the moment. They couldn't have any uh, spectators. And yet it, uh, I think it passed off as a, as a pretty good competition, which will not have much of an asterisk alongside it when we look back in years to come, Jill. No, I definitely don't think so. I mean, you still have to go and compete. And um, I, I thought of that before, you know, with the, you know, unfortunately the players weren't allowed to have, or the athletes weren't allowed to have the fans there. And it was, that was one thing when I was watching it, that it seemed so different and, and, and just, it would have been really challenging, I think mentally for the, for the athletes to deal with that. But when, when you actually saw the, events and the tennis like you could see that they were just so focused and so that was great to see but um yeah I mean I think Tokyo has done a phenomenal job I mean it was one of the most challenging 
last years and a half, of course, but they pulled it off. They did a phenomenal job from what I could tell from watching. <laughs> and everyone who was there like you can call themselves an Olympian. My thanks to Jill Krabus, who will be with us later in this podcast as we look forward to the tour resuming in North America. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. So following the Olympics, the tour focuses on the North American hard courts. In fact, it's already there. The USA has a champion guaranteed in Atlanta this week, though at the time we're recording this podcast, the final between John Isner and Brandon Nakashima hasn't yet taken place. That champion for the USA is a rare speck of good news for American men's tennis at present. Indeed, there was no representation for America in any of the singles medals matches in Tokyo and only one appearance in the men's doubles where tennis sangrin Austin Krychek lost to Marcus Daniel and Michael Venus in the bronze medal match. So when I recently sat down with the former player Patrick McEnroe, who worked for seven years as head of development for the US Tennis Association, I asked him if something's going wrong and whether it's an easy thing to put a system in place that identifies talent. And just to note that nine minutes into this conversation, we had to take shelter from the rain, hence the change in audio quality. I, th- I don't think there is a perfect system. I think uh, you could have a lot of resources, which the USDA has, which the LTA has which the French Federation has, which the Australians have, you know, because they've got the four majors. So they have a lot more resources financially, generally, than than other countries. So it's not necessarily about that. That can help, obviously, with, um, you know, hiring good people and and hiring good coaches. I mean, that was, for me, when I took over, uh, I, I certainly had some very good coaches that were already working at the USTA, but I thought that was... Uh, a priority. So I put Jose Higueras as the director of coaching. You know, he's an amazing coach and maybe even a better person. And, you know, he had a, a certain coaching philosophy, a certain way of coaching. And I thought, at least for our program at that time, that that was something important to have, just sort of like a, a more, somewhat more organized system of coaching. How would you summarize Jose Higueras's philosophy on coaching? Or his... Well, I, I think his philosophy would be, uh, you know, it, a little bit of the Spanish mentality, which is, you know, footwork, preparation, obviously, you know, fitness, hitting the right shot at the right time, but more about, I think, playing the game rather than hitting the ball, you know, so what do I mean by that? Well, playing the game means, you know, sort of understanding what shot to hit at the right time rather than, you know, I can pound my forehand and, and hit a lot of balls, you know, really hard and deep. And I think generally, I mean, I'm speaking generally, that our players over the course of the last 20 years, maybe because the game's become more athletic, maybe because more Europeans have gotten into the game, it's become, I think, clay court, early clay court preparation is even more important. Um, you know, you have to play more constructive points to win generally on any surface now, whereas sort of bang-bang tennis used to be enough on a lot of surfaces, grass and, and a hard court. So I think learning how to play the game rather than just hit the ball. I think generally we saw a lot of kids, more so on the boys' side, that were very good strikers of the ball but didn't necessarily play the game as well as uh, some of the European counterparts. Uh, now, you could say that's because of clay courts. Or you could say that's because the, clay, the, the f- Europeans generally move better than our, uh, uh, than our male players. 
Um, because they learn on clay and most Americans learn on hard courts? Or? Uh, because they learn on clay. I think in the last 20 years, it's become more apparent that to be a successful top male, well, male or female, you need to not only be a really, really good tennis player, but you need to be a, a, a great athlete, meaning you need to move well, you need to be quick, you need to be athletic. And a lot of our players are not that. Our top male players are not that. The women's side is a little bit different. We, I, th we, I think we have the pick of the litter of the best athletes. And to me, that's really what it comes down to is in the U.S., because tennis is not as popular as other sports, on the men's side, and certainly be if to become a professional athlete, uh, you're going to choose other sports way before you choose tennis, baseball, basketball, football, American football, before you pick tennis. Whereas in, if you're a young girl and you're a phenomenal athlete, tennis is really the only sport where you can make a lot of money. I mean, golf is okay. You see the court of girls, you know, they're great golfers too. Um, but to become a, a, a top athlete and make a lot of money, if you have a young girl who's five or six years old who's very athletic and seems like she's, you know, wants to compete as an athlete, in America, growing up in America, you would push them to tennis more than the other sports. Uh, other sports are very popular for young girls, like softball and soccer, but you can't make a lot of money playing those sports. So how do you make tennis attractive to young American boys? Uh, that's a great question, and I don't have the answer to that at the moment, which is why, uh, you know, be, you, you see... Does our, it need another... John McEnroe. Uh, I could, or I could use Sam that. Chris yeah, I mean, we've seen that with the Williams sisters on the women's side, so that certainly helped. I think um, you see a lot more uh, African American women, you know, that have that have taken up tennis, that have you know done very well. Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, now Coco Goff. But you have women of all different backgrounds. You know, Annie Samova, Sonia Kennan, you know, who are immigrants from from Eastern Europe, come to the U.S. They're great athletes and they end up getting into tennis. So from a boy's side, it's just, it's, it's more difficult. Uh, we all know it's harder to make a living playing tennis and a lot of other sports are hard to make a huge living. You know, it's too top heavy in my opinion. So that's starting to be addressed. But too, the top, too much of the money goes to the top the players. The top players. Yeah. But I think that what we tried to do when I was at the USTA was at least create a, a more systematic program which I believe we did, obviously get the top players together as much as possible, which we were able to do at the USTA Training Center, which at the time we shared with the Everett Academy in Boca. Now it's moved to Orlando to at least you know, allow the top kids to come together more often. Obviously taking them away from their home coaching setup or their family situation is always precarious and always delicate with how people look at you as a USTA. Oh, don't tell us what to do. We know what to do. So that was, that was always complicated and still is complicated for, for the USDA to have to figure out how to do that properly to get the kids um, in a more of an, a, a competitive environment with other kids that are as good as them. It's a little easier to do that with girls when they're younger because great girls at 14, 15 maybe run out of girls to play with, but they don't run out of other boys to play with. So for them, it's not as crucial. If you're a great male player at 15, 16, and you live in a part of the country where you're already better than everyone else, well, at some point you have to leave and go somewhere where there are better players for you to play with. Just going back to the point about the Spanish method includes recognizing players who hit good balls rather than just are great ball strikers. They know how to play a point. 
Does that mean that you found yourself in situations where you got some kids who'd been told at 12, 13, 14 that they were the bee's knees, but you actually had to say, yeah, they're great ball strikers, but actually they've gone as far as they're going to. And actually there's somebody who isn't as impressive, who's got the potential to play a better game of tennis and therefore in the long run will be better. Well, I think a lot of that comes down to the athleticism of the players. You know, so you can be at 12 or 13, you can be a great ball striker and play a lot. You know, from the time you're six, seven, and you can get to be number, you know, top five in the country in the U.S. And then the question is, how do you continue to improve, to evolve, um, to play better competition, to get out of your comfort zone, to see, you know, to be number one, you know, where I come from in the East. So that's one thing. But then to be number one in the country, okay, that's another thing. But then to be number one in the world, you know, when you travel all over the world, is a whole different thing. So. It's, it's like everything. I mean, it's, that's the same for anyone from any country. It's different levels of progression. So, uh, you know, in the U.S., obviously, we've got the college system, which is great, which most players should aspire to, uh, to go to college. But, you know, in most European countries, they're looking at, you know, from the time they're 15, 16, they're, they're going to be a professional. It's the, the, the ones that end up going to college from Europe, like the Cam Norries, uh, you know, Paul Har, who is from my time, those were guys that weren't good enough when they were young to be pro. So, oh, I'll go to college, and then they end up, you know, like me. I was maybe not good enough to be a pro at 17, but then when I was done with college, you know, I became a solid pro. But you're still not seeing the best players in the world but a come lot of, from college. A lot of people are going to college now, aren't they? It's almost like it's coming back. Well, it's coming back, uh, which is great, because that's very important for us in the U.S. that people see the possibility of using tennis as a way to get into college and go to college. So that's extremely important. But they're not all, you know, great, great players are not going through college tennis. There's, a, you know, you have Jennifer Brady now who's, you know, could become a great, you know, top 10 player. But you're not seeing, these are solid players. Don't get me wrong. They're really good professional players. But they're not Rafael Nadal. You know, Novak Djokovic, those, you know, um, you know the players that we've, we see now coming up, Sitsipas and so on. Does that not beg the question, Patrick, about the, um, can a national association ever develop Grand Slam champions or can they only get number of players in the top 100 so that you will actually end up with a Grand Slam champion if you're lucky? Yeah, I think that's more likely what what would happen. I think uh, you know, usually it first of all comes from the player, number one. The family, I think, is the most important thing around that player. So Roger Federer, you know, he went off to the Swiss Tennis Federation and, and you know, left his home when he was, I think, was 13 or 14. 14 yeah. So, you know, he got a lot of help, obviously. I think you can help, you can aid, can you develop them, start to, I don't think anybody can do that other than the individual and the maybe the family around them. But you certainly can play a significant role and a significant part. That being said, you know, there are plenty of, you know, Coco Goff basically had no help from, quote unquote, the USTA player development program. But you could certainly make the argument that, you know, her being able to play highly competitive junior tennis at a young age, um, growing up where she did, was helpful to her. Now, they, they would never say, well, would never say the USTA developed Coco Goff, just like I wouldn't say they developed Madison Keys and Sloane Stevens, for example. But those players, those two players, I know because I was there, you know, got a significant amount of help coaching resources from the USTA as they were teenagers and growing up and, and, and working their way onto the pro tour. So I think that's where the association, the federation can be very helpful. And, and we know it's getting more competitive. It's getting more expensive for players to make it at any level, but particularly at the highest level. So those things that a, that a federation can do to help along the way, I think is um, a big boost to those players. 
Looking back on your seven years in charge, what do you think you got right and what do you think you didn't get right? Well, I think we got right that we did have a, a, a pretty organized approach. Um, probably if I were doing it all over again, I would probably have tried to be a little softer with working with the private sector initially because um, a lot of people got pissed off at me because they felt, you know, I was sort of strong arming them. And, you know, I was trying to, to shake up the system a little bit and to and 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 to challenge people you know and that that you know in the political world of the USTA that i think it sort of ran its course that people maybe got a little frustrated by that so but i think that we were on the right track i mean we were you know a significant part of the group of american men that are doing well now you know taylor fritz riley opelka tommy paul you know, francis tiafo they all developed you know in slightly different ways slightly different parts of the country but they were all helped in different ways by the USTA and by Jose and Jay Berger and Ola Momquist, you know, the, the head coaches that that worked under um, the system that I put in place. So I think, you know, and a lot of really good coaches. We had a lot of coaches that we hired from from different parts of the world that 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 upset a lot of American well, coaches. You know, that how could you know hiring South Americans and yeah, Europeans? Well, first of all, that's those are the people that wanted the jobs. Okay. And those are also people, I think, that bring uh, a, that different yeah, sort of yeah, look yeah, and philosophy yeah, to what you're yeah, doing yeah, from different parts of the world, which I thought was important. So I think yeah, that absolutely. ruffled some feathers yeah, in, the, in, in some different parts of it. But I'm pretty proud of what we did. Obviously, the women's, you know, our women's tennis program continues to thrive. You know, there's, there's, there's as I said, players coming with you know, from all different backgrounds, all different um, shapes and sizes and looks and colors and, uh, and doing quite well. You say all sorts of different shapes and sizes, looks and colours. I mean, have you spread the net in terms, you know, is tennis a more widely played sport in America as a result of the development plans that you've put into place? Uh, I don't think so. No, I think that's an error that we, we all could do better, you know, because I think that's, that's the, the honest truth is no. Um, because I think tennis is, a, is a, first of all, it's an extremely difficult sport to, to take up, to master, to get really good at. It takes a lot of time and effort and resources, which I'm learning now maybe more so than ever working at our own academy, you know, the McEnroe Academy in New York, actually spending more time on the court with coaches and kids now in this job. I realized, well, tennis is pretty damn hard. You know, it's pretty damn tough to get really good at. So I think we could do a much better job as a country, and we're trying to do that in our own academy. We have a scholarship program to help kids from the inner city get started, but then to take them all the way to the promised land, you know, that's a whole nother um, challenge. You can hear the rain pounding <laughs> down on, yes. the, on the temporary roof that we've taken some refuge in. Let me just ask you one more thing. Well, we try to wait for the rain to stop. You mentioned a number of names, perhaps more girls than boys, mm -hmm. but are there any names who we are starting to see on the tour that you are particularly proud of? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to see all those players that I mentioned on the men's side, the women's side, like Sloan and Madison. And, you know, I think our coaches and our program helped them a lot, you know, coming up. Um, but, you know, I think that Sebastian Corda is a guy who I, I think has got the most upside of any of the kids I've seen. He's, he, I wasn't there when he was, actually I was, 
was had a couple of conversations with Peter. I remember when he was just a 13 or so, Sebastian, and Peter was like, "No, I'm going to do." You know, and I got him here. I'm not. I'll, and he he ended up sending him to the USA, but when he was a little bit older, you know, to try to give him some help. So he obviously knew knew what he was doing and did a great job. So I think he's got great potential. I mean, obviously Riley Opelk and 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 Tommy Paul. They were at you know when I first got to Boca, they were 13 year olds. Um, you know that were there living there so and i remember when i first got there uh and the first time when i took the job and i looked down there were no female players there and i remember saying to coaches you know where's this one where's that one and where's and you know sure enough a year later most of them were there maybe not full time but a lot of them were there so so i'm proud of that that we were able to even though they all you know did slightly different tracks you know sophia kennan keys you know stevens etc um i think that we made it so that they, you know, pushed each other. They continued to push each other. You've been out of the job for about five years now. When will the benefits really happen? I mean, there must be a massive time lag between the kind of systems that you and Jose Higueras put into well, place. Well, Jose, Jose was disappointed because he wished we had another at least three or five years because he thought it take, would take at least 10 to 12 years. Um, so unfortunately, you know, it didn't, that didn't happen. We got about seven years, which I thought was, was a good run because, you know, USTA is a political organization. So at some point, you know, it, it, it runs its course and it's a huge operation. So they... Um, you know, some of the things that we did, they were able to continue. Martin Blackman took over, who worked for me for a while, great guy. And I know he's he's tried to continue some of the things, but it's been, you know, when they moved to Orlando, I think that was another challenge. You know, how do you keep it going from there? So uh, the jury's really still out. Uh, and I think we did, you know, I always had came in, my, my goal was let's make a bunch of really good players. And if we can sort of flood the gates with some really good players in the top 200 and in the top 100, hopefully we'll get lucky. You know, and there'll be a great player that will come out of the mix. But we never really looked at it like we're going to find one great player because I don't think you can do that as an association. But I think what you can do and what I'm most proud of is, you know, we got a bunch of really good players. We, we, we gave them different resources, which they were looking for. And they've all become pretty successful pros. Now, now can they get to the very, very top? That remains to be seen. The voice there of Patrick McEnroe. Jill Krabus is still with me. Jill, obviously it's fascinating to talk about what individual national associations can do to encourage youngsters, but to what extent do we get too fixated on that? To what extent do we actually have to focus as much on where athletes look from deep within themselves to realise their full potential rather than saying, well, I didn't do well because the system didn't support me? Yeah, it, it's tricky. I mean, look, so many things have to go right. I, I think for you to excel and become a professional athlete, I mean, so like you do need, a lot of players do need the support from their federations or from the system and it does help, but it's also that big support group around you that that's so important. And the mentality of the, of the player, the work ethic, um, you know, having the right attitude, being willing to grow and, and improve on a daily basis. And all those things sort of have to accumulate together. So for me, it's not just about one aspect coming coming from a different area. It's everything around you has to be almost per- not perfect, but kind of work in a way that is supporting you as a player because that's going to affect you mentally and how you, and how you're on the court, how you're off the court. What you know, having that good balance. So to say it's coming from one area. To me, that's not really exactly how it works, or it didn't work for me just personally. 
it has to come from all around you, whether like my parents were a huge support group, friends around me, my brother and sister were absolutely amazing. And I got a little bit of help from the, from the system as well, but it, it's how you as the player handle it and how you then transfer it on the court and how you deal with those challenges and improving and growing on a daily basis. A lot of it can be luck as well. I mean, who, who you meet, if, if you run into someone that, you know, gives you a chance and, um, it, you know, if you do come from a background where you not don't quite have the financial backing that you need because tennis is an expensive sport, but uh, I mean, it's who you come into contact with and, and again, that support group around you and um, I don't know, like it, that's, it's so challenging. I mean, every little thing has to be just in place. So you never know, you never know what's going to happen or when you're going to get that little bit of a break or, you know, someone just takes a chance on you. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. All these little things that have to go just right for you to be able to excel. Yes. It means that what makes a good tennis player is only about 20% of whether they can hit a decent tennis ball because there are so many other elements. And one other element we're going to focus on now is tactics because it's been 28 years since he wrote Winning Ugly, a book that established the American former world number four Brad Gilbert as something of a tennis guru as well as a very good player in his own right. When I spoke to Brad recently, I asked him if the positive reaction to the book and how it continues to inspire people surprised him. It's amazing, actually, that it's still relevant after all this time. I had hair then, but even more amazing how it came about. You know, I was in the locker room of the San Francisco Tennis Club. I was icing my ankle. It was like a meat locker in there. And this guy comes up to me. You know, I knew a little bit. His name was Steve Jameson. And he goes, I got this idea. You know, he comes to talk to me. I got this idea, you know, write a book, you know, with you. And I'm like, no, I'm not a writer. And he goes, no, really, I got an idea about writing this book. You know, are you interested? And I'm like, nah, I don't know. And so he, he kind of let it go. He comes back 24 hours later, the next day, I'm icing my ankle. And he goes, Brad, I got this idea about writing a book with you called Winning Ugly. And I go, and, and, and I kind of looked at him. And I go, that's, that's a catchy title. He goes, that's what everybody says about your game. Um, and I said, okay, maybe I, let, let's give it a go. Little did I know, about two weeks later, we were working on the book. We banged it out really quickly, like maybe in a month. He told me he bet his friend a hundred bucks. His friend had written a book and he was trying for months and couldn't get it published. He bet him a hundred bucks. He goes, I can write a book with Brad Gilbert and get it published, which he did. And before that, Steve had never written. He was a morning television producer. And since that book, he went on to write about 10 other books. You said Steve said that people talked about your game as winning ugly. Had you thought of it as winning ugly? You know, I had heard that people that would say about me, but I, I didn't think I played ugly. I actually would, you know, all tennis players think we could do better. Or, you know, you, you're never satisfied. You know, you always think you could do better. But, okay, I, it was interesting that people would say that or people would say I would bring people down. I always just thought that I was just kind of figuring out my opponent's weaknesses. Maybe I was trying to figure out what I did well. But I was always thinking about tactics ever since I was a little kid. Do you think people misinterpreted Winning Ugly as sort of gamesmanship when really what you were advocating was very much within the rules? I certainly hope not because uh, I, I don't advocate gamesmanship in any way, shape or form. And I really like to talk to club players, juniors, about you know, learning how to maximize your game. So many people take tennis lessons and a lot of times, you know, they're not learning that much or they're working on one thing specifically. But a lot of times when you play in a match, 
they keep score for a reason. And and a lot of times club players, especially juniors, don't know how to maximize their strength. And something that they don't do well, they maybe are going to find that under pressure. So it was more about helping people with their game. What do you think is the thing that people do least well that they could easily improve? You know what? Keep the ball in play. And I say so many, you know, club players and juniors, when you hit a scorching winner, you get one point. But when you miss five chasing it, that's minus four. A lot of times I'll ask good juniors, how many points does it take better, you know, to win 6-4, six, 6-4? Four, six, four? You know, first hand, oh, 15, 20, or, you know. And I tell a lot of people, if you're five points better, you can easily win 6-4, six, 6-4. Four, six, four. Um, so I, I really think it's about, you know, at least for a lot of club players too, keep the ball in play. If you keep one more in play, you're going to be in good shape. Because a lot of us, we love the scorching winner. It looks great. But if we miss a lot, you know, I call it the one in 10. When you're running wide and you flick the one winner, but you miss 10, that's a bad ratio. That's the one in 10 ratio to stay away from. When people mention winning ugly, obviously they think of the book. But as much I suspect these days, people think of a philosophy. Do you think it's become more of a philosophy than just a book title? That's a good question. Obviously, you know, a, a book before me that's it's still relevant 50 years afterwards is The Inner Game of Tennis. Tim Galway. Um, yeah, I'd like to think of, you know, I was a thinking player. I'm a thinking coach. Um, and honestly, I, the, the whole mentality once we started and what Steve told me we were going to be working on is how we can help people. Because a lot of people take a lesson. But this is something different. And I'd like to think I'm this way on TV. I'm this way. You know, I'm always trying to figure out something. Um, and we're standing here in the hallway. And what one of the coolest things that happened to me maybe 10 years ago, player in the draw, said, well, are you going to be here for a few more minutes? And I said, sure. They came sprinting back. And the, um, they had winning ugly in Russian. Whole book was yellowed and all the different things. It was almost like they'd done their homework on it. And, and, and then she said, I have so many questions. I've read this thing 20 times. And it's like, I signed the book for her. And, and I've had like quite a few people at tournaments will tell me like, wow, this thing meant to, you know, what it meant to them. And it, it's in so many languages, it's cool, like I said, that it's still relevant after all this time. I wish I had the hair that I had 28 years ago. So when you watch a, a junior tournament, do you actually think, I wonder how many of these players, without ever knowing about the book, are actually putting into practice things that you helped perpetrate. Honestly, I do get more coaches that, that tell me that from academies and places you know, where they work, that they make it required reading. And it's like, really? You know, and, and part of, you know, as you get older, you wish you could have done this differently, or you wish, you know, but you know, listen, you don't get do-overs. Um, but it's still cool that so many you know, coaches that I've, I've run into think that even today, that it's relevant, and there's still a lot more of the process of kids that they're trying to get through that, to think about what they're doing and how to maximizing what they're doing. And, and, and like I said, I, I study club players, and I still think about things they can do for their game. Is there a risk that by being so aware of tactics, sometimes players might forget the nuts and bolts and uh, not hit a clean forehand or a clean backhand or get into bad habits on the serve because they're thinking too tactically? There, there's no doubt. Um, I went from Andre Agassi that, you know, we could talk for three hours 
to when I coached Andy Roddick, it was a little bit more like mission impossible. You know, after 10 seconds, you know, the, the message was going to implode. So that that is important for the coach to understand the player that he's working with, how he processes information, and how he's willing to take it. I had one player that once I started telling him about that, don't tell me that because if that doesn't come up, you know, or it does come up, I, you know, jeez, you know, so everybody's different and you got to be able to understand that. You mentioned Andre Agassi there. I mean, you started working with Andre within a few months of the book coming out. Was there any link there? Did Andre perhaps see the book come out and say, Do you know, that's the help I need? Um, geez, I, you know, I, I don't know. But, you know, we were good mates. Um, and I'm not sure that the, the book was a swaying, you know, way one way or the other. Um, but listen, you know, sometimes the key to coaching, have somebody make you look good. Andre made me look great. Well, a lot of people go to Andre now for information. I mean, a lot of players have, have worked with him over the years. And now Sebastian Corder is uh, on the phone to him quite regularly. What has Andre got? And has he picked it all up from you? Well, I mean, it's funny. We talk now all the time about Corder's game and tactics. Andre was a, a person that could talk a lot about tennis, a lot about tactics, and, and really process information. And I think he's at a point in his life. He really enjoys helping people fulfill their dreams. I think I helped him in a big way. He's a little bit more like, I would say, I used to say, you're this exotic car, you know, a complicated genius. I'm more like a Chevy truck. You know, I can just say it and, and boom, I'll just say it. You know, I don't, you know, think about it for days. If it's on my, boom, I let it fly. So we, we were really good chemistry that way. Um, and I think that Andre will be a really good coach because he has a lot to offer. When you're commentating on a match for ESPN or whoever, do you find yourself looking at it and think, do you know, the rackets have got better and the strings have got better and therefore the tactics are now different? Or are the basics still the same? I don't think about the ra any of that stuff other than when I'm sitting courtside and I'm doing the match, I'm always thinking about tactics. I'm always thinking what, what player's trying to do to the other player. Who's trying to hurt who with what? Who's trying to, you know, impose their will with this strength who's trying to get to that weekend so i'm always first and foremost especially when i'm sitting courtside i'm always thinking about tactics and a lot of times i love to watch players practice before playing a big match to see what they're working on right before to see if there's something i can pick up right in practice and so who are the best tacticians out there in today's professional oh, there's tennis lots of good ones but obviously the big three what sets them apart is the, their ability to do things and to change. Maybe, maybe Rafa is one of the greatest ever mid-match, especially when he's down, making some changes. All of them, you know. You don't get to a, a level like that and you're not able to make adjustments. Because I always tell, you know, players, if you're down a set and a break and you're not making a, any adjustments, you're hurting yourself. What keeps you so enthusiastic about tennis? Um, I'm 60 years old. I started playing this game when I'm three. I will be this way when I'm 90. There's absolutely no reason other to be enthusiastic. I love this game. There's not ever been a moment, Chris, where I haven't felt like, wow, I want to be part of this game. And, you know, I've got to play. I got to coach. I got to, I get to talk about it now. So it's a great gig. The irrepressible Brad Gilbert. My goodness, I wish we could bottle that enthusiasm and that infectiousness. It's just wonderful to be able to have somebody who just loves his tennis.
Well, just a quick word before we go about Casper Ruud. While we've been focusing mostly on the Olympic tennis event, there have been uh, two ATP tournaments going on. We mentioned Atlanta earlier, but there's been a tournament in Austria, in the mountains, in Kitzbühel, and it's been won by Casper Ruud. And he's become the first player for 10 years to win three successive tournaments in three weeks. He decided not to go to Tokyo. He stayed on the uh, post-Wimbledon European clay court circuit, and he's won three of the most traditional of those tournaments. Borstad two weeks ago, Gestard last week, and this week he's won in Kitzbühel. Jill, that is just a phenomenal achievement. It, it really is astonishing. I mean, <laughs> I kept I kept reading articles as he was going along, um, as he was playing, and you know, it's it, it was in the back of his mind. Like you, you know, people were talking about it. He'd be like, "Yeah, it'd be great to get the hat trick if I can," and to be able to know that you know everyone's talking about it around him, and yet to still come through and be able to win three in a row. I mean, that's that's just incredible. I, I actually saw him play for them. I mean, I've seen little bits of his game like throughout the year, but I saw him play like full match at the uh, French Open this year. And I was just super impressed with his um, determination and just work ethic and also the way he carries himself. I mean, he never really fusses about anything. If he makes a mistake, he's just right back at work. And I mean, got a great all around game, but to be able to do back to back to back like that, I mean, that's that's really mentally tough. It's a remarkable achievement. Is there a danger that he may have peaked um, a little bit too soon? No, I don't think so. I think it's going to be, well, it's definitely going to be how he manages that after. I mean, I'm assuming he's going to take a little bit of a break. I would hope so before he he starts on the hard courts or the U.S. swing. Um, And I think, uh, I think, you know, he has a good support group around him. I mean, his father's been pretty influential in his career. So I think, you know, he's going to have some good advice there and, and be really smart about how to manage that before he comes over to the States. And the North American hardcourt circuit continues in Washington this week, which is where you are, Jill. What are you going to be looking for and what are you going to be doing? Oh, I'm very excited. I'm going to be interviewing a lot of the players, just getting some background information, talking to them about their form leading up into the U.S. hardcourt swing and um, just, you know, how how they've done the last couple months and what they're looking forward to once this uh, U.S. Open series starts. That's it for this week. My thanks to Brad Gilbert, Patrick McEnroe and, of course, to Jill Krabus. Join us next week as we'll round up events from Washington and look ahead to the back-to-back Masters 1000 events in Toronto and Cincinnati and gauge how everyone's shaping up ahead of the final Grand Slam of the year, the US Open. I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis. <laughs>